Okay, well today we are fortunate to have Jeff Wiggins here for the second time. For those of you who were here last week, uh, know what you're in for. A, a study from out of 2 Kings concerning the prophet Elisha. Uh, Jeff is a member of uh, Fellowship Bible Church. He's been active in job networking here. And Jeff, we're delighted to have you. Uh, welcome. Come speak to us, please. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's it's always an honor and a privilege to be here. Um, we started at a different time this week, and I forgot to ask, what time's quitting time? About 10.30. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. yeah, I took my watch off. It reminds me of the story of, uh, I hope I don't offend everybody with it, the uh, little Roman Catholic boy and little Southern Baptist boy became friends. One Sunday, they one one weekend they spent the night at the little Catholic boy's house, and the next morning they went to mass. And the little Southern Baptist boy had never seen anything like that. And to the little Roman Catholic boy's credit, he understood and explained what everything meant because the the mass was confusing for the little Southern Baptist. And he said, and he kept saying, "What does that mean? And what does that mean?" Well, the next weekend they visited the Southern Baptist Church. It wasn't that hard to understand what was going on. And finally, the preacher got up to preach, and he took his watch off and set it on the pulpit, and the little Catholic boy said, what does that mean? And the Southern Baptist boy said, that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> I hope this means something. That's the point of the story when I put it here. Uh, my name is Jeff Wiggins. We've lived in the East Cobb Roswell area for 26 years. My wife and I have uh, participated at Fellowship for 26 years. I was mentioned last week, I grew up in a, in a unique faith community that we call the Mormon Church. At 17, I realized I didn't agree with some of their teachings and some of their history and began about a 10-year journey trying to find truth in my life. I attended a good Methodist college and uh, got a degree in philosophy and religion, and uh, was totally confused after, <laughs> after that efforts, and um, at age 27 encountered the Lord Jesus Christ in an incredible way, and came to a point where I had to trust Him with my eternity. Since then, I've, I've, um, I like Bible stories. You know, I'm just a kid at heart. I like Bible stories. Last week we talked about how in the Bible there's different kinds of literature. There are the epistles where uh, one of the apostles uh, would write a letter. Paul or Peter or John or James. And they'd write a letter either to a specific church or to the church in general providing information and instruction. And we love the epistles, especially people who preach, because there's a lot of do's and don'ts in there. And you can get down and dirty real quick when you teach out of the epistles. And then there's the poetry books, like Psalms, which are so beautiful. That poor people, you know, David and other authors in Psalms would pour out their heart to God. And those connect with us. And then you have the prophetic books. And those are fun because you can take all the theologians in the world and lay them end to end, and not one of them will reach a conclusion about what some of these prophetic books mean. 
And so that's why there's so much fun uh, for a lot of people. And then there's the narratives. The Gospels are the narratives. Now, we love the Gospels because we have the actual words of Jesus there. So it gives us so much more to chew on. And then so much of the Old Testament is just a narrative. It's a story. They went from this place to this place, and at this place a certain thing happened, and then they moved to another place. And we, we look at the narratives as just a background that we can hang the epistles on, that we can hang Deuteronomy or the Ten Commandments on. Well, there's a lot to learn in the narratives, and I, I love to spend time there. You get hints and clues you know, and as you study the narratives that help you understand what was going on, you have to understand the culture at that time. And all of a sudden, you find a message from God. And isn't that what we're looking for? Isn't that what we want? You know, I, I heard, I listened this morning, and my heart broke with you as we shared our concerns and our hopes. James says in the fifth chapter, he says, uh, the earnest prayers of the righteous availeth much. And so we're encouraged to pray for one another. You know, it's interesting, the verse leading up to that, it, it says, if anyone is sick, let him call for the elders of the church. Let them lay hands on them, and they'll be healed. For the earnest prayers of the righteous in the King James availeth much. And... Um, you know, if you're a Presbyterian or a non-denominational evangelical, the elders means one thing. There are special people called for a specific purpose. If you come from a um, different background, the elders of the church might be your pastors. I, I kind of take a broad overview because that word elder in that, in that culture referred to people with wisdom and experience people who had uh, learned what God wanted to teach them not by going to some school but by walking with him for a long time and as I look around this room I know I'm in the presence of the elders of the church and I would encourage you to pray for one another for the earnest prayers of the righteous and we're all righteous only through faith in Jesus not through our acts Pray for one another. Pray for those you love. Pray for those that God brings into your life. I tell the story of um, Pope Innocent. This is 12th, 13th century. I can't remember the dates. He's sitting in the, his palace and he's sitting at a table supposedly piled with gold and silver. If you remember in the book of Acts, um, there's a lame man who appeals to Peter for, for a, a, a donation. He's a beggar. He's asking for gold or silver. And Peter looks at him, the apostle Peter, and says, Neither gold nor silver have I. But I say to you in the name of Jesus Christ to rise and walk. And the man was healed. Well, supposedly Pope Innocent standing there counting all of his silver and his gold. And Thomas Aquinas, a great theologian from the early Dark Ages, walks in, and I'm paraphrasing, we don't even know if this conversation took place, it's just a good story. And, and Pope Innocent says to Aquinas, he says, uh, the church can no longer say neither gold nor silver have we. 
And Aquinas says, yes, that's true, and we can no longer say to rise and walk. I think so often these miracles, you know, you, Paul witnessed the miracle while he was in Peru. Why don't those happen all the time? I think because we trust our wealth. We trust our government. We trust our resources more than we trust God. You know, the church can no longer say either. And when I say the church, I'm not talking about an organization. I'm talking about us as believers. The church can no longer say arise and walk because we trust in our gold and silver. Which leads us into our study this morning because it's a study in trust. Last week we looked at the Shunammite woman in 2 Kings chapter 4. God promises her a son. He's born. The birth is a miracle because she's an old woman and her husband's even older. And the little boy at about the age of seven or eight has a heat stroke and dies. And she goes to the prophet Elisha who promised this child and pleads with him to come. Elisha sends his servant Gehazi ahead with his staff and tells Gehazi, don't stop, don't talk to anybody, go straight to this dead child, lay my staff on the child's face. And Gehazi does that, meets Elisha as he's following, he comes back to meet him and says, the child is still dead. And the point, you know, why did, why did Elisha want this staff? laid on the child's face. That was because the people at that time had begun to put great power or importance on the symbols and not God. They had started to believe that the staff of a prophet, just like Moses, would strike the, the Red Sea and it would part. He would strike a rock and it would pour forth water when he hit it with his staff. His staff turned into a snake and devoured the snake's of the priests of Egypt. And so the people were going, man, those prophet staffs, those are something. And Elisha wanted them to know that it's not the staff, it's God who makes things happen. <clears throat> and one of the points of that story is, what are the, what are the prophet staffs <clears throat> in our lives? You know, what are we trusting rather than trusting God? You go into the next chapter, and that's where we're going this morning, the story of Naaman. If, you're in, if you have a Bible, 2 Kings chapter 5, there's this little story about this man named Naaman. And he is the general of the Syrian army. And, and if you read more of the, of the Old Testament and knew the history, if you put all the pieces together, the Syrians had been beating up the Israelites someday. <clears throat> so much so that the Syrians had been carrying off Israelite captives to serve as servants as slaves in their households. And we, we read about this man, Naaman. It says in um, 2 Kings 5, verse 1, the king of Aram, Aram was another name for Syria, had great admiration for Naaman, the commander of his army, because through him the Lord had given Aram great victories. But though Naaman was a mighty warrior, he suffered from leprosy. He suffered from leprosy. And if you, if you study the Hebrew, the word we translate is, um, was a mighty warrior or a great man. It's almost an oxymoron because if someone had an infirmity, if someone had a defect, 
like leprosy, or if they were lame, or missing a limb, or blind, or blind in one eye. You wouldn't describe them as a great person. You wouldn't use this descriptor. So this, so Naaman must have really been something to be considered a great man with leprosy. And it's interesting. You know, the king thought highly of him. He was a conqueror because he had carried slaves, captives, back back to Syria. But he was also a castaway because he had leprosy. And the leprosy at that time was something to be feared. And it was a death sentence. And it's interesting there in verse 1, it says, But though Naaman was a mighty warrior. The word but is useful. It should keep us humble before God. You know, Jeff Wiggins, he tells good Bible stories, but if you knew, you know, and the question for us is, what would they say about you if they knew everything? What would the but be? You know Bill Scott, great guy, personable. But, okay, Naaman, a mighty warrior, but he suffered from leprosy. That but drove him to God. Whatever follows that comma after but, talking about you, should drive you to God. Is at this time Aramean raiders had invaded the land of Israel and among their captives was a young girl who had been given to Naaman's wife as a maid. One day the girl said to her mistress, I wish my master would go see the prophet in Samaria. He would heal him of his leprosy. You know, there's a believer in Naaman's household. Why are we surprised when God shows up in unexpected places? You know, how often do we limit what God can do because it doesn't fit our paradigm. You know, but you know, I hate the idea of some little girl being carried off into captivity so that she could be used mightily by God in Naaman's life. But God's a lot smarter than me. And I have to trust him in those situations. And I sure don't want to find myself in the situation of the little Israelite slave girl. But God's God, and I'm not. And that's the first piece of business we have to do every day, is who's in charge today. And for me, I do pretty well on my own for a while. So who's in charge? Believer in Naaman's house, why are we surprised when God shows up in unlikely places? And what about this girl? She had a concern for Naaman. Even though a captive, she still cared about the people around her. What does that say to us? She had confidence in God, even though a captive, we usually see only see God in good places. You know, if I'm carried off into slavery, I'm going to assume that God has abandoned me. But she still had a faith. She still had a confidence that he could intervene in people's lives. And she had a confession for God. She spoke up out of her conviction. The question for us is, do we do that as often as we could? Verse 4, So Naaman told the king what the young girl from Israel had said. 
Go and visit the prophet, the king of Aram told him. I will send a letter of introduction to you to take to the king of Israel. So Naaman started out carrying his gifts, 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter to the king of Israel said, With this letter I present my servant Naaman. I want you to heal him of his leprosy. It's a nice letter. I, I, I checked the uh, uh, commodities markets a couple weeks ago, and 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold is about $4,163,040. Could be up or down in the last couple weeks. Plus 10 sets of clothing, and clothing was hard to come by back then. And, and for it to be commented on, this was nice clothing. This wasn't the stuff I buy at Steinmark. This is, this, he went and paid full price at a really nice shop for those. So when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes in dismay and said, This man sends me a leper to heal. Am I God that I can give life and take it away? I can see that he's just trying to pick a fight with me. This is, I call this a give me a break moment. Do you ever have those times at work? Or with your kids, especially, especially when they're about 14 and up. <laughs> you know, when you say, give me a break. What do you want from me? I, you know, people think Abraham was a man of great faith because he put Isaac on the altar. I realized that it really had a different motive, that Isaac was a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all have had teenagers too, I can tell. Um, no, I, that, I made that up. That's really not what I think. But you know, it's interesting. The king mentions God, but he does, doesn't turn to God for help. He says, am I God that I can do this? But he doesn't go there. You know, remember uh, Thomas Aquinas and Pope Innocent. You know, the church had begun to trust their wealth. The king had begun to trust his power. The king of Syria, he's only going to talk to other kings. Naaman is told that there's a prophet in Samaria who can heal him, but where does he go first? Now, some theologians, some commentaries say that this was like an, a, a uh, uh, diplomatic move, you know, to get, to get permission to travel through Israel. But you know, if I have leprosy and I'm going to go see the prophet, I'd have gone to see the prophet. I wouldn't have gone to see the king. How often do we turn to the government first? So, you know, the government ought to do something about that. And I'll admit, there's a lot of things that the government ought to do things about, but do we turn to God first? That's the question. Verse 8, but when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes in dismay, he sent this message to him, why are you so upset? Send Naaman to me, and he will learn that there is a true prophet here in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and waited at the door of Elisha's house. And if, if you understood a little bit, I, I did some research when he says he went with his, his horses and his chariots. Do we have any retired uh, army in here? Battalion strength. How, how strong is a battalion? 800. 800. They're saying that Naaman was probably traveling with a, with a battalion. He had 800 soldiers, and he probably had the equivalent of artillery, a couple of tanks, maybe some rocket launchers. <laughs> Naaman is loaded for bear. 
He's wanting everybody to know that he's special and to leave him alone. You don't, you, you, you didn't attack Naaman as he traveled through Israel. He's got money and he has might. And he shows up and he waits at Elisha's door. But Elisha sent a messenger out to him with this message, Go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River, then your skin will be restored and you will be healed of your leprosy. Okay, lessons from Naaman. He went to the wrong person. How often do we go to the government instead of God? He carried the wrong price. Four million dollars. Though bought with a great price, God's grace, God's healing, God's love is a free gift if we will accept it. We don't have to buy it. And that point is going to be proven as we move on in the story. And then we'll also see that Naaman had the wrong plan. He shows up with money. He shows up with might. And then let's look at what happens next. Elisha has said, just go down to the Jordan River and dip seven times and you'll be healed. Verse 11, but Naaman became angry and stalked away. I thought he would certainly come out to meet me, he said. I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy and call on the name of the Lord, his God, and heal me. Aren't the rivers of Damascus, the Abana, and the Farpar better than any of the rivers of Israel? Why shouldn't I wash in them and be healed? So Naaman turned and went away in a rage. How often do we limit what God's doing in our lives because it's just not going like we thought it should? You know, Naaman, is he's traveled all this way seeking healing. And then... Elisha's not doing it like he expected. He wanted a little ceremony. You know, he kind of wanted them, he wanted Elisha to come out and make a big deal. I, you know, I grew up in the South. He wanted some hoop to do, you know. <laughs> he wanted to wave his hands in the air, maybe shout a little bit. And Elisha doesn't even come out to see him. He just says, hey, just go down, dip in the Jordan seven times, and you'll be healed. And Naaman says, it's not how I see it happening. You know, as another elder of the church, I mean, I can't hide it. You know, my hair, I spend a lot of time in the sun. It just bleaches it out. What can I say? Uh, when, when I became a Christian, we, we attended a mainstream church. And coming from a Mormon background, organ music and choirs and robes and the liturgy meant so much to me. I loved it. And then we entered a period in our life where we were seeking some deeper understanding of the Bible and we started going to non-denominational churches which were very non-traditional. I know you have a contemporary worship service and a traditional worship service here. And when we started visiting and participating in these non-traditional churches, they had very non-traditional worship. <clears throat> but it was acoustic. And I was okay with it. And then over the years, it got electric. <laughs> and it got louder. You know, and, and fellowship has been our faith community for 26 years, but if you visited recently, we have great lighting and great sound and a great rock and roll band, and the young people really enjoy it. And I don't like it. I'll just be honest with you. I wish they'd bring back the acoustic guitars. That's what I like. You know, I'm, I'm kind of a folk singer, bluegrass kind of guy. 
I don't like the loud stuff. And I realize I sound like my grandfather. <laughs> I realize I am a grandfather. And if you've got enough time, I can tell you about my grandkids. You know, and because it's not going on like I want it to. God only shows up according to how I see things. And Naaman is doing the same thing. <clears throat> Verse 13, but his officers tried to reason with him and said, Sir, if the prophet had told you to do something very difficult, wouldn't you have done it? So you should certainly obey him when he says simply, go and wash and be cured. You know, it, what great advice. You do something difficult, why won't you do something simple? You know, and, and it, it, the more I've studied through the years, the simpler my theology gets. You know, I, I get worried when I talk to these guys who, who use big terms and a lot of words that I don't understand to try to explain that God says, give up, trust me, and do what I say. And we say, but gosh, I wish it was prettier. I wish it was more elaborate. These men who work for Naaman care enough about him to say, hey, Wait a minute. You do something difficult. Why don't you do something simple? That says to me, why don't you do the simple things, Jeff? The simple things that God wants. Love people. Have an open mind. Have an open heart. Try to see people as God sees them. Not as I see them. So Naaman went down to the Jordan River and dipped himself seven times as the man of God had instructed him, and his skin became as healthy as the skin of a young child's, and he was healed. I don't know if you remember, there was a great movie, great theological work, about 15, 18 years ago, called, <coughs> great movie, uh, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Remember that one? John Candy, yeah. Steve Martin. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hello. Yeah, yeah, John Candy, Steve Martin, and uh, they're funny scenes, but there's this one scene because it's two guys trying to get from New York back to Chicago for Thanksgiving, and nothing works. Paul can relate to the airplanes not working, and they're renting cars, and there's this great scene where it's late at night, they're in their rental car, and they're tired, and Steve Martin and John Candy are driving on the wrong side of the interstate. <laughs> and this car on the other side says, they pull up and they're going, you're going the wrong way! And, and John Candy says, they must be drunk. How do they know where we're going? <laughs> and Steve Martin goes, yeah, how do they know where we're going? And then Steve Martin looks out. He's in the passenger seat. He looks out and he can see the median. And he goes, you can see it in his eyes. Well, we're, on this, we're on the left side of the median. They're on the right side. We're going the wrong way. And about then, two tractor-trailer rigs come over the hill, side by side, and it's a very exciting and funny moment. But how often do our friends, how often does our church, how often does God's Bible say, you're going the wrong way? And we say, how do they know where we're going? I know better. Naaman was going the wrong way, and his friends said, Hey, man, listen. How often do we not listen? Naaman's salvation, he did what God asked, not what he wanted. 
Naaman submitted. Next verse. Then Naaman and his entire party went back to find the man of God. They stood before him, and Naaman said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. But Elisha replied, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept any gifts. And though Naaman urged him to take the gift, Elisha refused. Now, Naaman's confession. Now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Question for me, and I, and I present it to you. Do you confess your God to the people around you? You know, we are so often silent when we should speak up. Not in, not in a confrontational way. We all, we all know those folks. You know, I always believe in, in conversation before conversion, dialogue and never debate. But how do I let people know? How do I confess God's reality in my life in a way that, can, that people can hear? Because people want to know. We live in a time where people are living empty lives. And what they want to know is that God is real and that a relationship with Him is possible. We don't have to beat them up with every verse we've ever memorized since four-year-old Sunday school. Okay. And then Naaman said, All right, but please allow me to load two of my mules with earth from this place, and I will take it back home with me. From now on, I will never again offer burnt sacrifices or offerings to any other God except the Lord God of Israel. Now, I was confused about this two mule loads of dirt. What in the world was that all about? What Naaman was doing is he knew that there was a God in Israel, and he wanted to worship every day on holy ground. And you remember Moses? He encounters God in the burning bush, and God says, take off your sandals, you're on holy ground. And Naaman wanted to be, wanted to have a little part of Israel so he could feel closer to God. question for us is, what do we do every day to make sure we're on holy ground? Now, as believers... In Jesus Christ, the law of the Old Testament has been fulfilled in Jesus. And we don't need holy ground anymore. We don't need a temple with a holy of holies anymore. Because we have the eternal atonement through the blood of Christ. So we don't literally have to be on holy ground as Naaman wanted to be or as Moses was when he was in the presence of God. Because God's Holy Spirit, as followers of Jesus Christ, indwells us. So we are holy ground. So what are we doing to keep it clean? He wanted two mule, two mule loads of dirt. Verse 18. This is where it really gets fun. However, may the Lord pardon me in this one thing. When my master the king goes into the temple of the god Ramon to worship there and leans on my arm, may the Lord pardon me when I bow to See, Naaman says, i got to go back to work. i got to go back to Syria. I have a job. And one of my jobs is I'm the king's right-hand man. You ever wonder where that phrase, the right-hand man, comes from? A king could only touch or be touched by certain people, people who were favored. 
And the king in these uh, these worship ceremonies for their god, the god Ramon, he would wear, based on some of the things I've read, a big headdress and a heavy breastplate, and he might have even worn real tall shoes so that he would appear taller and greater than everybody around him, which kind of make him look big. Well, it's not easy to walk around and all that stuff, and it's not real easy to stand up or sit down. And so a trusted servant of the king would stand at the king's right, and when he would stand up or sit down, he would put his hand on their shoulder, right-hand man, and he would help him balance. And that was Naaman's job. He was so trusted and honored by the king, the king would touch him. And so Naaman says, hey, Elisha, i got to go back to work. And one of my jobs is I have to help as these people worship this God that I know is not a God. I worship the God of Israel now. So will you let me do that? Is that okay? And so if you look at verse 19, Elisha says, No, you're washed in the blood. You're a Christian now. You're good. You you can't talk to your old friends anymore, which is what we do. But Elisha, this is how verse 19 really reads. Go in peace, Elisha said. So Naaman started home again. Because see, Elisha understood that now someone who knew the God of Israel was in the king's court in Syria. That God could use him in a mighty way. He sent a missionary back to Syria. He didn't say, You've got to clean up now you've got to clean up your act, you can't do those things anymore, you can't hang out with your old friends. Elijah says, you know something? You're a carrier, and you can infect people with the knowledge of God. And when someone someone decides that they're going to do business with God, we tell them, well, now that you're a carrier, you have to be isolated with the rest of us and not talk to people. Question for us, are you quiet in your realm of influence? God sent a spokesman, Naaman, into a new realm of influence. Verse 20. The Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, My master should not not have let this Aramean get away without accepting any of his gifts. Gehazi had a better idea. As surely as the Lord lives, I will chase after him and get something from him. So Gehazi set off after Naaman. When Naaman saw Gehazi running after him, he climbed down from his chariot and went to meet him. Is everything all right? Naaman asked. Yes, Gehazi said. But my master has sent me to tell you that two young prophets from the hill country of Ephraim have just arrived. He would like 75 pounds of silver and two sets of clothing to give to them. So Gehazi is smart enough to know to not ask for everything. He just wants a a couple years, maybe five years wages, some nice clothes, because you can't let it get away. This is good stuff. Verse 23, by all means, take twice as much silver, Naaman insisted. He gave him two sets of clothing, tied up the money in two bags, and sent two of his servants to carry the gifts for Gehazi. But when they arrived at the citadel, Gehazi took the gifts from the servants and sent the men back. Then he went and hid the gifts inside the house. But when he went into his master, Elisha asked him, where have you been, Gehazi? You know, just like, a, just like your teenagers. I haven't been anywhere, he replied. (laughs) But Elijah asked him, Don't you realize that I was there in spirit when Naaman stepped down from his chariot to meet you? 
Is this the time to receive money and clothing, olive groves and vineyards and sheep and cattle and male and female servants? See, Elisha knew what Gehazi was up to through God's power. And he even knew what Gehazi planned to do with the money. And if you remember last week, when the Shunammite woman approached Elisha, Elisha said, I, I don't know what's troubling her. God has not shown that to me. Which is another example of how God works. Even with his prophets. We think the prophets knew everything. You know? That there was nothing that would surprise them. They were surprised because God only told them what they, he wanted them to know. And so, in this situation, God revealed to Elisha exactly what was going on with Gehazi. Verse 27, Because you have done this, you and your descendants will suffer from Naaman's leprosy forever. When Gehazi left the room, he was covered with leprosy. His skin was white as snow. The lesson from this, greed is the leprosy of the soul. If we continue to cut corners, lie and cheat, to get things that we don't deserve, it eats away at us. Greed is the leprosy of the soul. Are you content with what God's given you? Or do you have to take things in your own hands? I try to remember that every April 15th. <laughs> some thoughts as we conclude that's the end of the story God shows up in an unexpected place uses someone that we don't expect shows us that we don't turn to the government or other institutions only him and then anybody did, it, did they wonder weren't there some people in Israel some good Israelites that had leprosy that deserved to be healed didn't seem fair. You know, God does what God does. He's God and I'm not. And when I try to sort those things out, you know, I, I um, our first grandchild was 10 and our daughter had a crisis pregnancy with her. And our daughter spent 17 weeks on her back in the high-risk perinatal unit at Northside Hospital trying to get that baby born. And we have a happy ending because my granddaughter is 10 and she's brilliant and she's beautiful and she's fun and if you want to brag and compare, I'll listen to you. But I know <laughs> that your granddaughters don't match mine. <laughs> but as we spent those 17 weeks my wife took off, my wife's a school teacher, teaches at Trent and East Cobb. She took a leave of absence. We made sure someone was with her, was with my daughter 24-7. And you got to know the other families on the floor. And through the weeks, most went home sad. Only a few went home happy like us. Why were some spared? And why were some lost? And that's when you come to the end of yourself and you have to say, God is God and I'm not. My brother-in-law and his wife had twins years ago. They were born with a congenital viral infection. The babies literally had a virus that they caught from their mother. 
the little girl is with us today. The little boy lived eight days. Why? God's God and I'm not. At some point, we have to surrender and submit to that. This isn't how I want it. You know? I wanted God to come out and wave his hand and do something big. But why don't we do the simple things? This story is also a lesson in prejudice. You know, and, and as we encounter things, this is one thing that's been helpful for me through the years, is that there are things of precept, things that are in the Bible. Those are non-negotiable. Now, we can, we can discuss what they mean and how they apply, but the truth of Scripture is non-negotiable. Then there's matters of preference, things I enjoy. I prefer a calmer worship service than I participate in today. But that's a preference. Preferences are negotiable. When a preference becomes non-negotiable, it becomes prejudice. If you don't do it like I want, then it's not a matter of precept. If you don't do it like I want, and you're, you're wrong, even though it's not a matter of precept. That's prejudice. And as, as an elder, I like my preferences, but I have to guard my heart. I, I found a, a uh, and we'll close with this, I found a newspaper article about this incident from the Sumerian Times. Okay. <laughs> Samaria. Word reached the palace today that the maverick prophet Elisha healed the commanding officer of Syria's armed forces of leprosy. Response from the palace was not forthcoming, although undisclosed sources say that the king has had troops on alert along the border for days. Early last week, the palace received advanced word of the Syrians' mission to Israel. This action was interpreted as an act of provocation. Relations with Israel's major economic and political threat have been on edge since the defeat of an Israelite Judean coalition at Ramoth Gilead. That's from 1 Kings 22:29. When word reached the streets of the capital, demonstrations broke out in the foreign quarter. Shops were vandalized and looting continued into the night. Demonstrators were overheard questioning the loyalty of the prophet and those who follow his, follow his fundamentalist sect. One demonstrator asked, wasn't this commander the very one who led troops that defeated our army and killed King Ahab? Many still have relatives on the frontier who are missing and believed to have been taken as captives to Damascus. Resentment among the, amongst the populace is running high. You know, that's how we look at things. It's all about me. I don't like them that aren't like me. Galatians 3.27 says, And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. John 3.16, for God loved the world so much that he gave his own son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We're not exclusive. God loves everybody. Just because it doesn't go like we think it should, we have to submit as, Amon, as Naaman did and trust what God is doing in our life and the lives around us.
I don't want to spoil the end of the book for you, but I read it, and we win. <laughs> it's going to be ugly before it gets better. But God's God, and I'm not. And He wins. I hope this has encouraged you to trust a little more, to simplify a little more, and to love a little more. Because God can do mighty things in your life if you just stop trying to do it on your terms. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for loving us, for meeting our needs, for being there when we're in trouble. Be real to us today. May we love you more. May we speak up for you in our realms of influence. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.